Welcome back to another episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast. I'm Mike Siciliano, Dean of Students in the Upper School. I am joined by two very special guests today. I think now I can say I'm rejoined by two of our special friends, right? We this love is your that. second time like here. Sissy Goff and David Thomas, thank you for being on. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you for letting us be here. So I think there's a couple milestones here. I want to say you're our first repeat guests wow. on the podcast are we you you First also time. you just did two sessions three sessions with parents and then for the public on campus in our new cafe which is kind of the first time we've Gorgeous. done that yes and we have new microphones so you're three for three on on setting the trends here um so we're really glad you're back and um i mean i'm you know this is we're, we're recording this at the end of your visit with us but the feedback has been incredible so thank you for spending some more time with us today we really appreciate it thank you for having us we have loved every opportunity to be with you all yes we have well do you mind just for our our audience um refreshing people on who you are and why we've invited you you're both experts in the child psychology field um so sissy why don't you go first so I'm Sissy Goff, and I've been counseling girls and families since 1993, which makes me sound so old, and live in Nashville, Tennessee, and counsel alongside. I have a little Havanese puppy who's not a puppy anymore. She's almost 14, <laughs> named Lucy, and she works with me every day. And out of that work that I feel so privileged to get to do, I have written some books, and um, the last few predominantly being around anxiety because it's mm -hmm. so prevalent among all kids but particularly among girls yeah yeah good I remember actually last time this has stuck with me since our podcast last year anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of Way my ability to, to solve it go. I remind yes, myself of that absolutely. I know that was for kids but I'm using it it's true so, for all of us yeah yes. good oh, so good. thank Thanks. you for that yes. one David we do all need that I love that you remember that in that way yeah I'm David Thomas, and I'm the director of family counseling at Daystar, where I've been for 25 years now. So Sissy was six when she started. I was seven. <laughs> we began this work, we like to say, have had the great privilege of being at that amazing place, working with a great team for all those years. And, and we love, we always say, we love getting to bring what we're learning from kids and families to times like the opportunity you all gave us, where we can just sit with parents and talk together about what it looks like to best serve and support the kids and adolescents we love. So I have a sidekick. His name is Owen. He's a Labrador retriever. And I, I jokingly say when I finished the process of his becoming a therapy dog, they sent his graduate certificate in the mail to me and I opened it and was devastated to find he has more letters behind his name than I do. So it's <laughs> such a humbling experience to have a dog who's more credentialed than you are. But he has he in my a place. book? He stars in one of the books, but okay. I want more of the credit than he gets for it. Right, so <laughs> you actually released one, I think, since you were here last about kids. Okay, so, so tell us about the most recent one. So the most recent book is a book called Raising Emotionally Strong Boys. And then I wrote a companion, your kind, workbook for elementary age boys. So kind of experiments to do with boys to help them make connections in that space, hopefully. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Um, and but before we get into something too deep, this is now your second visit. We were chatting a little bit before coming on the air. You are absolutely of the mindset of taking advantage of eating as much Mexican food as you can while yes, you're here. Yes, we are. Yes, Nashville just can't hold a candle to you guys. Okay, well, Nashville, there's other things Nashville does True. better than us. But I mean, I mean, we'll accept that compliment for sure. <laughs> 
Um, do you have a favorite spot yet in your two visits of being here? I fell in love with Taco Stand yesterday. Okay. Yes. It was amazing. All right. Oh, it was incredible. So you may not know the controversial nature of that answer. Ooh, tell us. Tell well, us. it just depends. So, so Taco Stand is a bit more commercial. Right, okay. a bit uh, like some some might accuse it of being less authentic. Some might. I oh. love it personally. You know, we get partial here to like our small, you know, non-commercial Mexican Fidel's, restaurants. That kind of. I mean, Fidel's down the street. Yes, a great we idea. did that last year. That's pretty That's good. Amazing. Too. So mm-hmm. anyway, I but it's a great choice. It's fine. You've just you've drawn a line in the sand for some of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> So please be open-minded as right, we talk together. Don't turn together. us off. Just I love our Mexican all fish tacos. Hey, we accept all. We accept all taco lovers here. So, <laughs> um, so all good. Well, we have. We were talking about this a little bit beforehand and trying to come up with like a through line for a podcast. And then the more we've heard you speak, the more it's like, well, we should ask him about this. We should ask him about that. Mm. So we may, if it's okay with you today, just just hit some of the topics that you've shared with us and and kind of bounce around a little bit. I'm going to try not to be biased by my personal parenting journey and the one specifically I want answered for my kids, <laughs> but it may sneak in there a little bit. That's um, totally okay. But yesterday you talked a, a bunch about milestones with mm. our families. You started with a, a session on milestones. So I, I think a question, you know, as parents, we're always obsessing about milestones sometimes maybe maybe I'm already on to myself but you know like is this happening soon enough late enough too soon too late um what should the parenting approach be to our kids and these milestones that we think exist or should exist you know that urgency that you described is something we've experienced with a lot of parents and part of why we wanted to ride are my kids on track to mm-hmm. to put some definition around emotional, social, and spiritual milestones that we want to see kids moving toward. And hopefully not only make those more clear, but talk more specifically about what are the stumbling blocks, what are the things that get in the way, and what are the building blocks to help kids move toward developing these important emotional and social muscles. And, you know, one of the things we say in the very beginning of that book that we can't say enough is that these milestones are different than the physical milestone. So where we know that we want to see kids crawling by a certain point, walking by a certain point, these are different in that no child is going to have developed full mastery around empathy by the age of 10. That's just something we hopefully are all... That comes at 12. Right. Right. (laughs) A little farther down. And hopefully we're all just still developing in that space, still working toward, and as we talk about, still practicing in ways that help those muscles get stronger. So we're quick to say, I would want any parent listening to hear us say again, it's never too late. Mm. It's never too late. So if you're a parent of a 16-year-old and we're talking around some of these ideas. Keep going back to it's never too late. You didn't miss the mark, but there's still opportunity there. We may have to be a little more creative about how we help adolescents develop some of these muscles than was easier to do with elementary age kids, but it's just never too late. And we talk a lot about how there are plenty of grown-ups we find when we teach classes who are still developing or need to still be developing, I might say, in some of these spaces so that kids and adolescents get an opportunity to sit front row and see the grown-ups they trust the most in this world doing that work in front of them. Are there specific milestones that you can speak to that as a parent, I mean, what are the things I should be looking for as my kid develops? We've broken it down into four emotional and four social and four spiritual milestones, watching kids over all the years of feeling like, what do they need to hit and what are they missing? Mm. And we, we wrote this book in 
what year? I mean, probably eight years ago, nine years ago. And so pre-COVID. And now I think we feel like it's more important than it was even then. And that kids are tracking a little slower than they used to. So I was going to ask about that in a sec. I mean, we're seeing that here, you know, at the high school level where I work. I'm sure it's it's K-12, but I mean, our ninth graders aren't the same as ninth graders pre-COVID. There was some, it feels like some stunted development here. It sounds like you're seeing that. Definitely stunted development. So I think even as, and David can outline them really specifically, but I think even as we're thinking about the milestones and passing through them, we want to hold them really loosely Mm -hmm. because that can, we can talk about anxiety too, but that can create more anxiety if my child's not hitting this yet and feeling like they're slower to do that now and development naturally is going to play a part. I mean, we're going to think they're really moving towards reciprocity, which is one of our social milestones, and then they're going to lose it in adolescence. And so not feeling like that is indicative of a character flaw or a personality disorder or anything like that, that sometimes we can see parents jump on the bandwagon of fear about. And I love that you drew attention to the natural lag that we just are going to be seeing with mm-hmm. kids yes. post-COVID. And, and I think as a culture, we talk so much about the fears and concerns we have about kids academically falling behind. But I don't know that we've talked quite as much about the emotional and social yeah. lags, but we're sure hearing evidence of that. And, you know, it's interesting. I think back to mid-COVID, reading an article for the first time where a pediatrician defined children who'd been born during COVID as what they called bunker babies Mm. and noticing at well visits that kids were reporting fewer words than ever before because they hadn't had as much opportunity for language development. And that makes sense. And I think about a conversation I had even recently with a family as a toddler and in their city, this was an out of town consultation, their parks had been closed and they obviously had not been hosting play dates during COVID. And so the first time they went to a park, the mom said, I remember watching my son from afar and a child took a toy from him again that natural process where kids aren't thing and he just started screaming and she said i realized no one's taken a toy from him like he hasn't had an opportunity to practice so if we were to think about all the ways that could look from littles all the way to adolescence of just fewer opportunities to develop in a lot of these spaces which just creates more so what i'm hearing is i should just follow my kid around and take their toys <laughs> just to give them that practice. That would be That's one way to practice the yes. reciprocity. So, so you mentioned reciprocity as a specific one. Maybe mm-hmm. you could, you could define that and, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, and share some of the other ones that are important things that as parents we can be looking for and trying to develop. Yes. We'd love to. We'll we'll start if it's okay with the emotional milestones because that's where we begin in the book. And the first milestone is the milestone of vocabulary, just helping kids develop what we call emotional literacy, like the ability to understand what am I feeling and to read emotions on others. And then we jump to perspective, which we talk about like the pain scale in an ER. So when the doctor says Where's your pain on a one to 10 scale? We need to know the difference between two level pain and 10 level pain. And we talk about helping kids learn to categorize the events of life, knowing that a one for me is losing my car keys, a 10 is losing a family member. But to Sissy's great point, we're seeing more and more kids hovering in the eight to 10 space over insignificant events because they've not developed. Yes, (laughs) yes, 15 on the one to 10 scale because they haven't developed perspective. And then the third emotional milestone is empathy, which is a well-researched foundational ingredient in all healthy interpersonal relationships. So parent to child, spouse to spouse, friend to friend, coworker to coworker, empathy is a game changer. Mm-hmm. 
And then the fourth is resourcefulness, which is just taking the emotion to something constructive and probably a more common place where we see a lot of kids and adolescents getting stuck. They just get really roadblocked and can't figure out how to move that emotion towards something healthy and helpful. Yeah. Which we hadn't even met y'all when we came up with these and had no idea how much they align with your values oh as a school. It's yeah. so fun. Yeah, absolutely. So so we have the three R's here. Um, in, in the lower school in particular, they use the eagle essentials, which are the three R's of respect, responsibility, and resourcefulness. Love um, that. Which you know, I know we've had a lot of success with. I know as a parent, I love that my kid mm. is now going through that and getting it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the idea of the one to 10, and you said you're, yes. you're seeing kids hovering at eight to 10 and 15. Yes. We're seeing that in the upper school too. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing that as a parent with mm-hmm. my seven-year-old, which I maybe have a year left of being able to talk about her openly on the podcast. Right. But, so like, I'll give you an example from this morning. Um, we changed our lunch line process here at the school. Like at COVID time, everything was in a box and it had the kid's name on it and it was, here's your lunch. Okay, so today, is the first day my seven-year-old is getting lunch at the the new lunch line process, which is actually the old way where, you know, I think you get some of it and you get to pick some of it. But all she, she woke up this morning in tears about what if I don't get my lunch? It doesn't have my name on it. I don't know what to do. I don't want to go to school today. Right. And and as I'm listening to you talk, it feels like she's taking that in the eight to 10 range. Mm. And I feel like, you know, in my maybe un- unempathetic enough way, you know, I want to say, hey, this is a two. It's going to be okay. Right, right. So how do we as parents, you know, when we see our kids in that eight to 10 space, are there some tips for us to try to get them to see the perspective or get them down to a five um, so that they have a little better scale there? Well, I think when you said unempathy or however you said it, unempathetic. No, I, I mean, said I, it grammatically incorrect. <laughs> well, I think that's where we want to start. Because when I'm hearing you say that about her and I'm picturing your daughter and thinking about kids today, I mean, we never went through a season of life where we were as out of control mm. as these kids yeah. have gone through. Yep. None of us. Yeah. And so what we have seen as a result is that especially kids who lean a little anxious pick these things that to us feel super random, but they're things they feel some semblance of control over. And when those change, they lose it completely. And so the lunch would make sense that that would be something that she thinks I've had lunch a certain way all this time. And now y'all are changing. I can trust that this is going to be true. Yes. Yes. And to think about, and you know, I don't know if this is really what she was thinking, but when, when kids talk about some of the most anxious times at school, it's lunch, recess, Mm -hmm. breaks, those unpredictable, unstructured times. And so there may have even been some of lunch is hard anyway. And this is the one thing I could count on. What what to me is a simple detail in the process is to her the part of a bigger thing that was constant that she could count on. Exactly. Now it's like, oh, no, I can't even count on that. Thrown off, right. We talked this morning about how all behavior is communication from kids. And Mm -hmm. often giving us a picture of what they need. And so in that time, there's something in her that feels out of control, that's looking for a place to have some. And so even as you're sitting and listening and being empathetic in that moment, saying, I can tell this is hard for you, and it's it's making you feel a little out of control, and wow, it's been out of control a couple of years, that we just start there. Okay. And then 
it is always helpful to talk about a scale with kids when they're not in the middle of an 8 to 10 or 15 <laughs> and to have established this is something we just talk about as a family. And around the dinner table, randomly, you say, I had an eight day today because this happened or a three day. And so it just becomes part of your vernacular. Yeah. And then to say to her, I bet that feels like pretty high on your scale. Tell me what number you think it was. And then and then after she really kind of fleshes that out with you to say, what number do you think it might have been really? Yeah. And then hopefully she can that. get to some perspective on her own. And even just the idea of surprising her with, hey, this this thing happened today that was bad, so my day was a five. Right. And she's she might be, well, wait, I thought it sounds like a nine. No, it was a five. No, it was a five, yes. You know? That's, there's a little bit there of mm-hmm. setting a, a more objective, maybe, criteria for right. what's a 10. Yes. Okay. I think I was thinking, too, as you all were talking, that you, Sissy, talked so much about how vulnerable, anxious kids are to worst-case scenario thinking. And I think that's true for us as parents as well. And to the story you're telling, I think a lot of parents come up on those different moments where we see kids struggling and it's just so easy and convenient to worst case scenario like they're never going to do this they're always going to overreact as opposed to if we could reframe that to thinking when we see kids struggle in different spaces whether it's perspective or empathy or resourcefulness like okay look there's opportunity for practice there's opportunity for skill development like let's reframe it like they're learning no different I would challenge parents listening than the ways we think about teaching kids to drive. Like, no one gets in the car with a brand new 15-year-old who has their permit and thinks they've got this down. We're all <laughs> thinking, like, yeah. this is going to be clumsy and messy and a lot of jerky starts and stops and some fender benders and all those things that we know are a part of learning to drive that if we could lay that over all skill development, I think, would allow us to approach our kids really differently in those moments of struggle. So you, so we talked about emotional milestones. Are there others as well that are important for us to consider as parents? So we have four social milestones as well. And the first is awareness. And we talk a lot about awareness of self and then awareness of others, which we laughed with parents in saying adolescents are going to lose a lot of awareness of others in those years because they're so self-consumed, which was true about every one of us when we were passing through that phase. In fact, can, I, can I tell a story? Please. One of my favorite conversations with a seventh grader years ago, she was talking about her best friend. She said, we are so close. I mean, we tell each other everything. And I think her parents got divorced last year, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, there okay. you go. All right. Y'all are so connected. You know everything mm-hmm. about her life, and you're not so sure if her parents got divorced. That feels like so. a big thing. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, not a lot of awareness there. Yeah, toddlers and teenagers. It's yes. fascinating the similarities that exist between those two pockets of development because yeah. we talked about how toddler, I see a lot of this with toddler age boys, that they struggle with volume, space, proximity. They stand too close, talk too loud. And that lack of awareness of others in their exchanges that I think repeats itself in the adolescent years as well. So again, so important to know that's normal when we see evidence of that with kids the second social milestone we talk a lot about is ownership and we talk about how all healthy relationships are a two-way street and what does it look like to clean up my side of the street Hmm. and talk about what the research tells us happens in the face of failure speaking of ownership uniquely with boys and girls I read a study years ago that I love that I've anchored to so much that talked about when something goes wrong in a boy's world he blames someone else (laughs) and when something goes wrong in a girl's world she blames herself 
And so she's more likely to take too much ownership. It was my fault. I ruined that. I messed that up somehow. And he's likely to shift it right on over. David has this great acronym of BAD that is boys lean towards blame, avoidance, and denial. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. We, I mean, I, I'm just thinking through, I would say, you know, obviously generalities and not true, right, but that sure. we see a lot of that here too. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. absolutely. You know. Well, and it lasts through all the ages. We, we talk about that probably in every parenting seminar we ever teach. We say that and we'll say when something goes wrong in a boy's world, he blames someone else. When something goes wrong in a girl's world, she blames. And I always stop at that point and every woman in the room loudly <laughs> says herself, yeah. you know, we just keep yes. on doing it. Not that y'all keep doing it, you guys, but we ladies do. Well, I think we can. Yeah. I knew, but when I do it, it's only because of other things that right. are happening. Right, it's someone else's fault. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Okay. So awareness, ownership, reciprocity, which is just a big fancy word for the give and take of relationship, the back and forth of conversation that we are seeing more kids struggle in that space mm-hmm. as well. And I yes. think, again, going back to COVID, there has not been as much opportunity to share conversation and figure out those natural yeah. rhythms. So yeah. we keep a tennis ball by our desk and our, by our chairs in our office and with kids who get really roadblocked in that space might use that, you could do this at home. Throw the tennis ball and ask a question. Say to kids, you know, when you're holding the tennis ball, you talk, when you throw it back to me, ask me something. And then you're listening in yeah. that space and the listening part can be harder for some kids, easier for others. And then the last social milestone is boundaries. And talk about the unique differences we discuss when it comes to boundaries with kids based on gender. Well, it's funny. Out of all the chapters in the book that we wrote, this was the one chapter that our editor said, you two went totally different directions. Just when I thought about the word boundaries and girls, where I went was so different than where he went huh. with boys. And my my thought was the girls have such a hard time setting boundaries you know, in relationship, yep. they don't know how to do that so much of the time. And David talked about how boys have a hard time respecting boundaries. So they're pushing the envelope yep. constantly. So trying to labor in and help kids figure out which, what healthy which boundaries Which on its own is like. a tough combo, too. Right. Oh, yes. Know. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So there's a couple other topics that, that I think we're seeing that I'd love to get your take on. So um, one is this idea of bullying. Mm-hmm. And bullying is a very real thing. I think from my perspective, and you have more insights to me, I'm, I'm really focused on one community. You get to see it over lots of communities, but there seems to be a rise in some of that behavior. I think a lot of the digital communication has, has made it easier, maybe has desensitized people to you know, memes and this idea of we pick on people, we make fun of people. That said, there are also times where any negative social interaction you know, parents will call and say, hey, I need to talk to you about some bullying. And uh, well, of course, it's all it's all bad, right? right. It's all, right. but maybe you can speak to what is bullying and what is kids learning how to be social with one another? And how as a parent, you know, do you determine that and, and should your reaction be any different or mm-hmm. is the reaction the same? I love that you're even talking about that because it is definitely something that we've seen. And we've talked about how kids are using such extreme language in everything. It's emotions that they're not saying I'm sad. They're saying I'm depressed. I'm not worried. I'm anxious. And in relationships. And David talked about it this morning. I I, I think four years ago, I heard more bullying. Hmm. Now I'm hearing from girls a lot of conversations about toxic relationships. Yes. I mean, I think 
six times a week I hear a girl throw out the phrase toxic relationships. And it's so (laughs) concerning to me because I think not that all of us haven't encountered toxic relationships. I feel certain that we have. And we need to learn how to have healthy boundaries in those places. And, And sometimes that involves disconnecting from the person who's in that place. But I think kids have gotten to where any conflict is bullying. Any person who is unkind is toxic, even if they're unkind every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And so I think it has become an excuse in some ways to disengage with people rather than learn what healthy conflict looks like. And so I I just love that you're thinking through that. I I even can think of girls who have come in my office and told me that their teachers were bullying them. You know, turns out the teacher was just pushing them and challenging them. But, But I think... I don't think kids are the ones who have been advancing the language around bullying and toxic yeah, relationships. Yeah. I think we've put that on mm-hmm. them as adults because we're trying to understand. And so we end up using these words. And so, I mean, as to a true definition of bullying, I would, I don't know exactly what it is, but I would characterize it more in something that has been not only repetitive, but has been unresponsive to any type of intervention. Okay. And so, you know, you have tried to help equip with your child with ways to handle it on their own. You have gone to the teacher. It has perpetuated itself or obviously really extreme in terms of how the child's treating your child, language they're using, behavior they're showing. But I think leaving them out on the playground, saying unkind things to them every once in a while getting together when your your child thought she was a part of the group of friends and she wasn't included. Yeah. That's really normal back and forth. Things we've all experienced when we were growing up. And I think it gets so confusing for them when we're stepping in and putting these labels on it. What would you add? You know, to I would link it to the conversation we just shared about perspective. Hmm. Because if we're talking about where kids are registering more often in the eight to 10 space in their response, I would argue the same can be true about their reporting at times Mm -hmm. and hours. Mm -hmm. And so I think one challenge I would offer to parents would be what if in all aspects of parenting, not just this one reporting on possible bullying, we worked hard not to under respond and not to over respond, which over response could be that eight to 10 space. And so if kids are in an elevated place and they just had a hard exchange with friends, it'd be easy to attach toxic or bullying to my reporting, which is just that I'm having a big emotional response. I think back to Sissy and I have a, a good friend who was the head of a middle school for over 30 years and delightful and hilarious and wonderful. And on the first night of um, parent night, uh, open house uh, at the school, she would look at all the parents every year and say, parents, let's make an agreement together. I'm going to believe about half of what I hear about you and let's you believe about half of what you hear about us. <laughs> That's so good. And then when we hear something that feels off, let's assume the best and be curious. Yeah. And I think we've, we've really kind of stopped doing that in this mm-hmm. world. We don't assume the best. We're not curious. We go straight to declarations. We go straight to posting, tweeting, commenting, all these things that I think is part of that over response. Mm-hmm. And so I think, again, which I love that Sissy said, I think it starts with us. And then let's, let's look at our language. Let's look at our response. Are we over-responding? Are we under-responding? Because, again, we're certainly advocating for 
I'm not saying let's dismiss it. Let's yeah. not take it seriously. Yeah, but right. let's make sure we're working with the accurate information. So yeah, I think I think, and because I, I, I want to be clear too. I mean, we we want to stop anything that sure. is detrimental Certainly. to anybody, of course. But it's more sometimes the best way is in resolution. You know, whereas repeated ongoing bullying, the best way oftentimes is removal. But if we go straight to removing somebody from a bad situation, right? you know, there actually could be a great friendship there that we're missing out on and the development of skills and conflict resolution mm-hmm. and, and all that that can be important. I was just going to say, I talk so much in the new book about, in general, I think boys can be pretty clumsy through development. And so that simply means there's going to be a lot of back and forth and fumbling the ball in relationships that's the normal way that they work through things. I mean, I wish I had a quarter for every time over the years. I heard a mom say, understandably, how unsettling it is when her son's like, you're mean to his friend, and then they're fine two minutes later. You know, and I think that sounds clumsy and abrasive and aggressive, and sometimes the way that boys work through conflict and relationship to get to a better yeah. place. That's not saying Am I not, not supposed to say that to my wife? When, <laughs> is that not, we is that could not work the, on a different approach, okay. Mike, all right? All right, all right. But I think if we were to even think about that as we think about under-responding and over-responding, that sometimes it's just going to look clumsy and difficult and, like, there's a lot of room for skill development, but it may not be bullying. It may not mm-hmm. be toxic relationships. So... I just think, again, let's assume the best. Let's be curious, get more information. What were you going to well, say? I just, I, yeah, I love what you're saying, David. And I love that picture of our friend that's the head of the middle school because I, I think one of the things you said feels so true, particularly for girls and for this phenomenon that I've seen over the years when you said, I'll believe half of what you say, what she says about me and vice versa. Because I think part of what feels like it happens is there's a lack of curiosity sometimes and parents just immediately believe Mm -hmm. the child and and we want our kids to feel like we believe them and at the same time there is a profile of a girl that we love and a personality study called the Enneagram and there's one number on the Enneagram there's this one personality that I mean I think I have had 25 girls Mm -hmm. over the years who've had the same exact experience socially. And they're girls who feel really deeply. They're very aware of everything going on. And they're very connect, wanting to be very connected relationally. And I will, we have group counseling at Daystar, and I'll inevitably have one of their moms call me and say, she feels really disconnected in group. No one likes her. No one's asking her questions. She asks so many more questions than they do she doesn't really want to do group anymore. And so I'll say, let's get her to travel a little bit longer. And so I'll purposefully watch. And it's just not what's happening. Yeah. And and so I will call the parent back and say, and this girl, by the way, is typically very artistic, very emotional. And I'll say, I think that some of what's happening is being filtered through her emotions. And so her memory is more based on her perception mm-hmm. and her feeling than on reality. And nine times out of 10, the child ends up stopping group because their parent believes them. And, yeah. and when I think about those girls, I think every time they have had a history of friendships that fail and not staying connected to other girls because I think their perception becomes, again, their reality. And so I feel like they're not wanting to hang out with me. I feel like they're leaving me out and I'm going to isolate myself. And now they really are leaving me out. And now I don't have any friends. Yeah. And, and I think... I feel so sad for each of those families because I think I wish you could have heard me as much as you've heard your daughter Mm. because she 
has a piece of this. Not that she's not missed by them sometimes, but she has a piece of this that's going to carry into adulthood yeah. for her. If somebody doesn't help her see something different and doesn't help her grow in awareness, that perception is not reality. And so, again, I love what you said. We want to be aware of bullying. We want to respond when that's the case. But we want to be good detectives and check out all the different facets of what might be going on, too. Yeah. So another thing that's similar vein, maybe a little different, um, someone, I didn't actually see this part of your presentation, but someone had texted me a picture that you put up of a school that has a sign kind of in the main office area Yes. that basically says, if you're here, I'm paraphrasing, but if you're here because your kid forgot homework or a lunch or a sweatshirt, please turn around and go home. Your, your child will learn some problem-solving skills in your absence. Isn't that awesome? So can you speak to that a little bit about, you know, what why you show that in your presentation, what you're seeing that, that makes you feel like putting that in there is important? Well, we talk so much, back to your R's, about how kids are really lagging in resourcefulness these days and that when we're so busy being resources for them, we stand in the way of them developing resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. And so that's some of it. I remember myself. I mean, I could... I can tell you where I was standing in the hall of my middle school, literally, when I remember realizing, oh, if I forget my lunch, my mom will bring me McDonald's every time. <laughs> and and that's yeah. it. You know, I don't have to be resourceful. I don't have to get up and make myself lunch, bring my lunch, because my mom's going to step in. And not only is she going to step in, but I'm going to end up with a better deal than yeah, I would have right. if I'd made my peanut butter and jelly. Well yes, I'd rather forget it and have <laughs> McDonald's french fries. Yeah. I was thinking, I told a story last night about a 15-year-old boy who worked at Chick-fil-A and had this, what he thought was a great idea, that he would stop going home to take a shower after a basketball practice and put on his uniform and how that was cutting into his time of hanging out with his buddies. And he would just go straight from basketball to work, and he got called in by his manager who said to this young man, son, the smell of you and chicken is not working for anyone in this place. I need you to go home and take a shower, and I'm going to dock your pay while you're gone. And then if you were to come to work again without being clean, you're going to lose your job. And how much opportunity for connecting the dots, how much opportunity for so many things I think happened in that. And, you know, it was interesting, a delightful mom approached us after the event last night and said, I love that story so much, and my husband and I own a restaurant, and I'm worried in this day and age, if we send a kid home, we might end up with a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, that's the truth, and it breaks my heart, just this reality of ways that I think we're standing in the way of kids developing more in these spaces, really important spaces. And if we were to go back to that driving example, like, Every one of us, I think as adults, would admit we learn to be better drivers yeah. after our first fender bender, our first speeding, speeding ticket. ticket. Yes. So I wish mine those. was a fender bender. <laughs> but, I mean, I was a month into my license, and the whole front of my car was in my face. So I was fine. But, you know, yeah, I learned a lot. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That creates a lot of opportunity for connecting the dots. So what is it that we as parents have to accept or do in ourselves to allow that to happen. I mean, because I think for all of us, you know, we don't want our kids to hurt. We want them to be successful. I mean, I, you know, we could go down the road of grades and parents, you know, well, they like, we like the idea of letting our kids struggle a bit until, you know, they have a C plus and it's November and well, well now it's getting maybe permanent. It might impact. So now I got to jump in. What, what tools do we as parents need to work on? 
Well, I'll say one very practical that we would love anybody who's listening to think about. So two questions. One is, what are two things you're doing for your kids right now that they can do for themselves? Wow. And what are two things that you're doing for them that they can almost do for themselves? And we would say in all four of those categories, we want you to stop. Okay. Did you see me shift in my chair? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's good. Yes. Okay. But you're talking about the parents of older kids. Right. Yes. <laughs> Everyone but you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because it's not my fault. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about respect, which I know you talked about in one of your other sessions, um, which I think was titled Modern Parents Vintage Values, which you have a book of the same yes. title, which I think a lot of people in our community absolutely love that title, mm. by the way, right? Um, yes. And this this idea of respect, because I think any parent feels a little bit like, why don't my kids respect me, right? How could you say that? I'm your parent. Mm. And we react in, in different ways about it. So... Mm. Maybe you could share a little bit about what you shared about that in your in your talk yesterday. Well, I want to back up and say, I think that, I mean, I do hear parents say that all the time. I feel like parents will say, if I had a nickel for every time my child said something to me, I never could have said to my parents. Right. Yeah. And kids do talk to us differently. And part of that, I think, is of great reason because we are today more accessible to kids than our parents were to us. You know, I think they feel more connected they feel we have more open relationships and the fallout of that is then they can be, they feel like yeah. they can be more disrespectful. Yeah. But I think it's of good reason that that's a problem that we have. It's I'm, still a problem. It doesn't mean they should get away with disrespect. But there's a subtle reminder in there of, you know, you, we can't take the, the bet, we can't ignore the best of what is current and just pick at the worst. Exactly. Like it comes together. It comes so together. that, that lack yes. of respect comes with some other things that maybe we've moved forward in right. compared to Ex- our parents. Exactly. My parents are great by the way. Yes. But. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of respect, there are some things that we talk about, like you want to practice respect inside and outside of the home. You want to be aware as a parent of what you're modeling in terms of respect inside and outside your home, being fair. We talk a lot about how every parent has one child who pushes their buttons the most, and it's often the oldest child of your same gender or the one that's most like you. Hmm. And with that one, it's easy to be harder on them, and then they start to pick up on that. And so thinking specifically about laboring a little bit longer with them, and then things like being conservative with your history as your kids become adolescents, I mean, I can think of a family. I mean, I will never forget this years ago. I think we'd both just started counseling. And and I was working with a high school girl whose mom told me that one night she had her boyfriend stink in her house and spend the night. And her mom was telling me that she had figured that out. And literally, she said, well, my boyfriend was sleeping over. <laughs> and he caught the boy going to the bathroom. And I didn't even know what to say. <laughs> But I think to that degree, we can only expect the kids we love to go as far as we're going ourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we have to be aware of what we're modeling again, but also what we're sharing with them. And and kids do not learn from our experience. I was going to ask that next. So, so I think there's this driving thing in all of us of I don't want my kid to make the same mistakes I right. made, which I right. feel like makes us want to say, hey, I tried this, and this happened, and it was bad, so don't do it. Yes. Does that work? No. In okay. all these years, both of us would say we have never had a child who said, 
well, my parents drank a lot when they were in high school, or my parents used drugs, or my parents had sex before they got married, so I'm not going to do that. It didn't work out well Because they told me. Right, yeah. exactly. It turns more into, well, my dad did this when he was in high school, and he's great now. <laughs> and so it becomes more licensed than a learning opportunity. And so really, we encourage parents not to tell those kind of things. Instead, you can say things like, well, I did some really dumb things when I was your age. But you know what? This isn't about me anyway. Because if they're a teenager, they don't want to hear about you for more than about three seconds. And so this isn't about me anyway. But, but I want you to figure this out. And flip it right back on them. Unless they have made a mistake that they feel like they're the only one in the history sure. of time. And they're yeah. so weighted down by it that it feels like you need to. But... Otherwise, we don't really feel like it works so the, in the, their favor. The stories are almost more for consoling and restoration yes. than for prevention. Is that Great fair to way say? way to say that, okay. yes. What are some other things that you're seeing in the last couple of years that you talk about in your book or that you've shared in communities that you speak in? Well, it's interesting. There are a lot of things we could talk about post-COVID. And we have, at Daystar, we have a summer retreat program that's like a camp that I'm the director of. And so... During the year, you know, we're both counseling kids all week, but in the summer, I get to live with them. And so I saw some really different things this summer, which were fascinating, and different things in the little ones versus the older ones. And in the little ones, I saw a lot of anxiety, but out of that anxiety, I saw more entitlement than I've ever seen with kids, which was fascinating. And for example, we had this adorable little girl. And she, we were going, we're on the lake and we go out on the boats every afternoon and we were going out on the boat and she, before she got on the boat, started crying. I don't know where I'm going to sit on the boat. I don't know what this is going to be like. How rough is the lake? I feel really nervous about that, this. She finally, we coaxed her onto the boat and we go down to this cove and we pull the kids on the inner tubes. And so we pulled her on the tube and she was the first one to tube out of the boat of I don't know, 10 people. And she got back in the boat and she said, that was so fun. I'm ready to go home now. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? And she said, you can take me back to the house. And I, I said, there's, we're out here with 40 people. Yeah. Everyone has to right. tube. But it immediately made me think, what a picture of what COVID has done to us. Mm -hmm. There is no sense of, I've got to work around other people. I've got to be flexible in this. It's very much, what do I need? What does my family need? It's so personalized. It's so personalized. Yeah. And so I think we have lost, kids have lost that sense of awareness, accommodating other people because they just didn't have to for a while. And so that's bled over into some entitlement from kids who would not, I mean, this little girl has the sweetest heart in the world yeah. she would never I mean she's not you wouldn't you wouldn't spend time with her and think in any way she's a spoiled child right. yeah it's just that they have been over accommodated because there weren't any other options yeah. what would you add about entitlement you say some great things in our class about entitlement well we talked a good bit last night with parents about the importance of kids having chores and responsibilities at home and there is an overwhelming amount of research to support the benefits of kids having chores at all ages. We talked about, you know, as soon as kids can walk, they can pick up toys. Mm -hmm. If they're walking, they can help with the lower level of the dishwasher, unloading the silverware. So really thinking back to those important questions Sissy asked about what are we doing for them that they could be doing yeah. that allows them to develop not just a sense of responsibility, but a sense of ownership in the family. Like, I'm a contributor to this family. There are things that are important for me to do. The dog won't get fed unless I remember to feed the dog. And yeah. so 
thinking in all the different ways that we can allow kids to help in those spaces. But even as the holidays are fast approaching, you know, thinking about Christmas, thinking about birthdays, I think we can be quick to buy gifts for our kids to give others, do all the shopping ourselves, our money, write their names on the cards. Where I'd want to challenge parents to think about how could we involve kids more and more in that space. And, you know, I think another lost art, something we talk a lot about is writing thank you notes. I think another place that goes back to the accommodation piece is we just assume that so many people in our kids' lives are required to do things for them as opposed to thinking about what it would look like to help our kids acknowledge at the end of a school year writing notes to their teachers, writing notes to thank their coaches at the end of the season for investing in, in them, writing notes to thank their grandparents after they spend a weekend with them, their camp counselors, all the different opportunities to help kids move away from entitlement, entitlement and more toward a sense of gratitude, which is one of the best weapons we have against entitlement. Yeah. The level of conviction, I feel, after you shared those <laughs> ideas is definitely in the 8 to 10 range. <laughs> so uh, that is awesome. So um, just rethinking things as we sit here. So hey, would you guys be up for, like last time, you know, we sort of planned on one episode and it spilled into two because you're full of so many awesome things. Can we take a little break and then we'll, we'll come back and, and we'll get into some other topics here in a sec? We would We'd love, love to. to. Awesome. So to those of you listening or watching, uh, thanks for tuning in to our Eagle Perspective podcast. Uh, make sure you catch part two of my conversation with David Thomas and Sissy Goff. You can find us as always on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, our video podcasts on YouTube, and anywhere else podcasts are available. We look forward to seeing you again soon.